I want to begin with a question this morning. I want to ask you, what is the greatest miracle that happened during Jesus' earthly ministry? Think about that for a moment. Do you think it was when he walked on water? It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Do you think it's uh, when he raised someone from death? Again, miraculous and incredible, right? What about the feeding of the 5,000 or even his resurrection from the dead? I'm sure if we went around the room this morning, we might get a variety of different answers to this question because let's be honest, Jesus did some incredible things during his earthly ministry. Well, this morning, we are going to discuss what I believe to be the most important miracle in the Christian faith. And here's what's interesting about this miracle. It's one that we don't often think about that much at all, yet it's at the core of what we believe as Christians. You know what this miracle is? Many of you do because you know what time of year it is and you probably looked at the title of today's sermon, right? It's the miracle that should be on all believers' minds this time of year. It's the, the, the miracle that made all other miracles that Jesus performed possible during his earthly ministry. It's the, it's the miracle of the, the miraculous conception of our Lord. It's the miracle of the incarnation. It's the miracle of God becoming a man yet remaining God. Think about that miracle for a moment. Do you realize the importance of that miracle, believers? Do you realize that without it, we don't have anything else? Think about that. If God the Son did not take on flesh and dwell among us, we don't have anything. We don't have a representative. We don't have a substitute. We don't have a mediator. We don't have a redeemer. We don't have a gospel. Therefore, we don't have a hope in the world. We don't. If God the Son did not become one of us, Former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. John Wolverd, once said this. Look at this quote. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. Upon it, the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. Is that important? The whole of Christianity rests on the fact that God the Son took on flesh. Matthew understood the importance of this miracle, which is why he leads with this truth in his gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. This morning we are continuing with our Christmas sermon series entitled Matthew's Christmas Story. And we're looking at the Christmas story from the gospel of Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And in today's passage, Matthew explains to us the events surrounding this wonderful miracle of Jesus' incarnation. Now, what's the purpose of Matthew giving us this information? Why single out this one event? Well, if you remember from last week, when, when discussing the reasons why Matthew wrote this book, I explained to you that all the reasons that, that the gospel writers wrote their books. And, and, and I explained to you that none of them wrote their books for the sole purpose of simply just giving us interesting facts about Jesus. 
None of them were, were writing to simply give us biographical content of his birth and his life and his death. We discussed that the, the writers of the four Gospels in the New Testament, they had, they had redemptive purposes for writing. These books were written to inform readers of the great lengths that God has gone through to save sinners. They give us specific things, a record of specific things about Jesus' person and work that are beneficial for us, for our salvation. That's the main reason that these books were written, and that's the main reason for Matthew's message as well, and that's the main reason for the passage that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew is not just writing to report some facts about Jesus, though what he says about him is true. He's writing in large part to defend the Christian faith and to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ. He's not just objectively throwing facts out there. He's giving a defense for the faith. He's not simply saying, oh yeah, and FYI, Jesus was miraculously conceived and virgin born. Thought you should know that. No, he's urging his readers to consider the evidence for Jesus' incarnation and to realize the importance of it. Why? Because just like in our day today, there were fierce opponents of this doctrine in Matthew's day when he was writing this, this gospel in, in, the, in midway through the first century. There were opponents in Matthew's day like there are today to this doctrine. In Matthew's day, there were, there were many who were skeptical of the incarnation. Many believed Jesus to be an illegitimate child conceived out of wedlock. Some questioned the moral reputation of Mary. And they probably believed that this scandal was covered up by Joseph as well. And many probably also believed this story was fabricated and was put on by Jesus' followers. In Matthew's day and in every generation since, there have been these fierce opponents to this doctrine right here. So Matthew writes about it here to defend this teaching and to convince his readers that Jesus came from above, was miraculously conceived by the Spirit of God, and was born of a virgin. And he does this in two ways. There are two ways that Matthew defends this teaching and convinces his readers of the truth of this doctrine. Number one, he gives us evidence for Jesus' incarnation, and then he explains the importance of it. So, so he gives evidence for it, and he explains the importance of it. First, let's look at the evidence for the incarnation. In verses 18 and 19, Matthew gives us some convincing evidence that Jesus was miraculously conceived. First, he calls for his readers to consider Joseph and Mary's circumstances. In verse 18, Matthew says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We're told in verse 18 
that Mary conceived when she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, to understand the significance of the timing here and, and why this gives strong evidence for the incarnation, we really must first understand what it meant in that day to be betrothed. You know, we don't use that word all that often today if we use it at all, right? But when it's used, it's often used in, in, in reference to being engaged, which is a lot different from being married, right? Today, there's not all that much that's binding about an engagement unless you bought some very expensive rings. And therefore, it's, it's not uncommon every now and again in our day to hear about broken engagements. But in the first century, when the Jews were betrothed, that, had a, 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 uh, that was much more final. That was much more committal, much more permanent, much more significant than... than it is today. To say that Mary was betrothed to Joseph in that day meant that though she was not yet living under his roof, she had made a pledge. And he had made a pledge to be married in front of other witnesses. So they were legally considered at this time to be husband and wife. Now, though that's the case, though they were all in and fully committed, those in the Jewish community viewed it as being inappropriate for a couple to come together and to live with one another and to have sexual relations at this time during this period of the relationship. So, though they were legally considered husband and wife, Mary and Joseph, like good Jews, were not yet living under the same roof and had not yet consummated the marriage. It was at this time in the relationship that Mary Conceived. Now, the timing here, folks, is impeccable. You have a couple who were viewed by everyone who knew them as husband and wife, yet everyone who knew them also knew that they were in that period of their marriage when they had not yet consummated the marriage, and it was at this time that Mary gets pregnant. Now, how does this happen? Whose child is this? I'm sure Joseph wanted to know. Well, Matthew tells us, he tells us in verse 18 that this child is a unique child, a special child. This child is from the Holy Spirit. And again, on, on top of making this claim, Matthew, he, he gives evidence for it here by, by informing us that this baby, once again, is, is conceived while Mary and Joseph are betrothed before they had come together as husband and wife. Now, upon hearing that, some will say, yeah, but who's to say they kept their nose clean, right? I know technically they were not supposed to be together, but who's to say that they weren't? Who's to say that they didn't find themselves alone at one time or another and slip up? Or who's to say there was an infidelity? Who's to say that Mary was faithful? Joseph certainly questioned that, right? So we'll find out in just a moment. So some will argue they, they might not have lived under the same roof, but there's other ways of getting pregnant. By Joseph or by someone else. So who's to say that didn't happen? Well, that moves us into our second piece of evidence here, given by Matthew. Notice Joseph and Mary's character. Not only do the circumstances surrounding this 
conception gives strong argument for the virgin birth, but also the character of Joseph and Mary. Let's look at Mary first. The character of Mary. Now, though we learn more about her in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew also shows us that Mary was a woman of moral purity. He mentions in verse 18 that she refrained from being with her husband while betrothed to him. And in verse 23, he explains that she is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 7 that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, you've got to be a virgin to fulfill that, folks. In case you didn't notice that. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. So Matthew hints here a few times at the moral purity of Mary. And also in Luke's gospel, Luke not only informs his readers of Mary's moral purity, but he also shows her great faith. He tells us that when Mary received news that she was with child and that the child was the Messiah, Luke says, Mary believed the word of the Lord. She placed her faith and trust in it. Mary was a woman of great faith. Now, she wasn't perfect. Far from it. She needed Jesus' saving work the same as the rest of us. But she believed in God's word and walked by faith. And then after that, Luke records to us, for us a wonderful song of praise that Mary sings to the Lord in response to the news. She was a godly woman. She was a godly woman. Then you have Joseph. Let's hear what Matthew has to say about Joseph here. In Matthew 1.19, he says... And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. We're told two things about Joseph here when he receives the word of Mary's pregnancy. One, we're told he was righteous, and two, we're told that he was kind. Joseph was a righteous man, but he was a kind man. First, he was righteous, and he shows this by deciding to divorce Mary. Now, some We'll read that and think, well, I thought you said Joseph was kind too. This doesn't seem very kind. This seems cold and, and unforgiving. He's just tossing her aside, not even hearing her side of the story. Now listen, Matthew shows us here that Joseph, by his actions, he shows himself to be a righteous man. You see, Joseph cared about marriage. He did. He understood the sanctity of it. And he knew that the marriage bed was to remain undefiled. And though he loved Mary with all his heart, he loved God and he loved his law more. He was righteous. He was also kind. Joseph proves his kindness by not putting Mary to shame. It's obvious from this passage that Joseph loved Mary because he does not make this matter public. Now, in those days, some women, when they committed adultery, they were publicly disgraced and they were expelled from the community. Remember the woman at the well? Remember that story? There's a reason why she is at the well at midday by herself. It's because she was an adulterous woman who had probably been publicly disgraced and shunned for her indiscretion. So that, that happened to women in that day. Yet Joseph, being a kind man, wanted to spare Mary that humiliation, so he makes plans to take care of the matter privately. He cared about God's law, yet he did not want to bring the weight of God's law down on Mary. 
And I believe we learned quite a few things here by looking at the moral character of both Joseph and Mary. For example, we see what kind of parents we ought to be, right? Parents. By looking at the, the character of the parents God the Father chooses for His Son. We can know that that's the kind of parents that, that we ought to be for our children, right? And believers, we see the type of people we ought to be. Trusting and faithful, worshipful, just and kind. But again, I also believe that we see further evidence here for the incarnation. You see, not only was Christ conceived during Mary and Joseph's betrothal, before the two were living together and before the marriage was to be consummated, we can also trust in the fact because of the great moral character of these two individuals that the marriage bed of Mary and Joseph was undefiled. Was. Matthew tells us in verse 25 that Joseph, even after they were married, he did not know his wife until she had given birth to Jesus. Therefore, there's only one other explanation that we have for Mary being pregnant and it's that this baby in Mary was miraculously conceived. There's the evidence for the incarnation. And then on top of giving evidence for it, Matthew also explains the importance of it. The importance of the incarnation. You know, the evidence here, it really matters little if we fail to understand the importance of the incarnation. Matthew gives us a couple of reasons why the incarnation is important. First, is because it reminds us that God was with us. It reminds us that God was with us. Look at the end of verse 18 again. Matthew tells us this. Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, folks, we're told twice in verse 18 and in verse 20 that the baby that is conceived here in Mary is miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in verse 23, we're told that this baby is to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, which indicates to us that this baby in Mary is God incarnate. Matthew is driving home the point here that this baby in Mary is from above. This baby in Mary is God in the flesh. Believers, the incarnation reminds us that God became one of us. The God of the universe, the creator of all that is, has chosen to enter into his created world as a man. As one of his created beings. That's the point Matthew drives home here. He's saying the reason it's important to focus on the miraculous conception, the reason the incarnation is important is because it reminds us that God the Son left the riches of heaven, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. It reminds us that there was a time when God stepped out of eternity and into history and became one of us. 
The incarnation reminds us that God was with us, that he walked with us, that he talked with us, that he ate with us, that God was with us. Folks, we do not serve a God who is removed from us and cannot relate to us. No, we serve a God who has become one of us and who has lived among us. He felt what we felt. He experienced what we experienced. He underwent the the, the limitations and the frustrations of daily life just like us. Therefore, he can relate with us and sympathize with us. So the incarnation is important because it reminds us that God was with us. Second, it's important to focus on the incarnation because this doctrine explains how salvation is possible. Look at verse 21. Matthew says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The incarnation is important because it shows us how salvation is possible. Matthew says, Jesus, by him, by the Son, leaving the riches of heaven, taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He came and dwelled among us so that he could save us from our sins. Now, how does he do this? How does Jesus save his people from their sins? Number one, he does it by providing an infinite sacrifice. By providing an infinite sacrifice. Because Jesus is fully God, he is able to fully and completely save us. In the Old Testament, they were always offering up sacrifices. Many and many sacrifices. Why? Why so many? Because none of the sacrifices that were offered, none of the animals that were offered could ultimately save anyone. They simply pointed in faith toward the work that the Messiah would do to atone for sin. So they were sacrificed over and over again. Like it says in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. No animal, no creature can save us. The only one who can save us is God himself. We often miss this when sharing our faith. We do. We often share how God has provided a solution for our sin problem and how he gave us a gift we do not deserve, but we often fail to make the point that he was the solution. He was the gift. Because Jesus is fully God, when he went to the cross and laid down his life, he provided the ultimate, the perfect sacrifice. As a result of that act, there's no more need for lambs or rams or bulls or goats because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is God. And when he goes to the cross, he pays for our sins in an infinite measure because he is infinite. He's God. No goat, no ram, no lamb, no finite creature under heaven can do that for us. But Jesus can because he's God That's one way Jesus saves. Another way is by being a righteous representative. Listen to Romans 5.19, and I've got these references there. You can jot those down and go to them later unless you have a quick hand. You can get there quickly. Romans 5.19, Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience 
The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Listen, Jesus is our righteous representative. Remember, we talked about this toward the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. You and I, all people, without exception, have one of two representatives representing us before God. It's either Adam or it's Christ. If Adam is our representative, he is representing us in terms of his disobedience. And his disobedience brings about for us sin and death. But if Christ is representing us, he is representing us in terms of his obedience. And his obedience brings about for us righteousness and life. That's why we need Jesus to be a man. Because as the perfect man, he can stand for us before God making us right with him. He is a righteous representative. Another way Jesus saves by being an appropriate substitute. Listen to Hebrews 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen. Jesus did not become an angel. Newsflash, right? He did not come in the form of an angel. He did not come to earth as an angel. You know why? Because he didn't come to redeem angels. Jesus did not come as an animal. Now that sounds silly, but I'm trying to make a point here. He didn't do that because he didn't come to redeem animals. He came as a man because he came to redeem people. He came here to redeem humans. That's why he became one himself. It's very important that we affirm that Christ became a man, that he was fully man. Because we are the people that Christ came to redeem. Because he was a man, fully man, the perfect man, he was able to be our perfect substitute. If Jesus is not fully man, he can't do any of that. He can't. He can't truly die in our place. He had to become one of us in order to be a true substitute for us. So he's an appropriate substitute. That's how he saves. Fourth and finally, Jesus saves by being a perfect mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 Paul says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The way God relates and is always related to his people all throughout history is through covenants. And in every covenant God has made with his people, there have always been middlemen. Men who have gone between us and God, whether it was Abraham or Noah or, or, or Moses or David. There have always been mediators. Well, guess what, believers? We're in need of no new mediators today because we have Christ. We have the ultimate, perfect, and final mediator, the Lord Jesus. He mediates between people. He, he mediates between us and God. And he's the perfect mediator. You know why? Because he's fully God and he's fully man. He can represent us perfectly because he's one of us. And he can represent God because he's God. So he's the, he's the perfect Middleman, He is able to go between us and God and mediate this covenant in a perfect way so that we can be made right with God. That's how Jesus saves us. 
There's another real interesting point, and this is sort of a side note, but it's a, it goes along with this point here, and it really needs to be made here. I think that there are some of us that don't tend to think of Jesus as still being a man today, you know? I think we think he once was a man here on earth, but, but now he's no longer fully man. Well, guess what? Jesus is still fully man today. He's still fully God. He's always been fully God, but he's still fully man today. He is the ultimate man, the perfect man, the glorified man, but he is still a man today. Paul says he is, present tense, he is the image of the invisible God. He's every bit as much a man today as he was during his earthly ministry. And guess what, folks? We need him to be. If he ceases to be a man, we're in trouble. Because we no longer have a mediator. We no longer have a substitute. We no longer have a representative. We no longer have one who stands before God who ever lives to make intercession for us. How can Jesus make intercession for us if he cannot stand for us as fully man? And fully God. So the incarnation, the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man is essential. It's essential for our salvation. And I pray that as the Christmas season approaches that, that you think on those things. Talk about 10,000 reasons. This is a big one. To praise the Lord with all your soul. Because Jesus became one of us. Let me close with this. There is a great verse of Scripture that really captures the importance of of the incarnation and it's found in 2 Corinthians 8 9 2 Corinthians 8 9 Paul says this for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich that's the gospel Paul stresses the importance of the incarnation right here in this single verse notice three parts to it here Paul says he was rich he became poor so that you might become rich. Folks, Jesus was rich. He came from above. Before taking on flesh, he existed in eternity past with the Father. He existed with the Father in this perfect fellowship, this perfect union, this perfect relationship. He was rich, yet he did not cling to these riches, as Don read for us earlier. Paul tells us that in Philippians 2. He did not cling to these riches. He gave them up. He emptied himself. He became poor. He became one of us. He took on poverty for us. He did this for us, believers. He became poor for you and for me. He left the riches of heaven for you and for me. Why? So that you and me, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul's not referring to financial riches here. You should know by now that kind of prosperity doesn't bring satisfaction that lasts. No, in mentioning riches here, Paul's talking about eternal riches. He's talking about being forgiven of sin, being made right with God, and being adopted into the family of God. He's talking about spiritual wealth, heavenly wealth, a wealth that lasts. Paul says this kind of wealth these kind of riches are attainable, but notice, not everyone will lay hold of them. Notice 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, by Jesus' poverty, you might become 
rich. Might become clearly indicates that some might, may not. Listen, not everyone will experience this wealth. Only those who trust in the person of Jesus Christ, only those who embrace these key truths that we've been talking about today, that God took on flesh, that he emptied himself by becoming poor for us, that he became a man, that he died a death we deserve to die in our place, and that he was raised for our sake. Only those who embrace these truths and trust in Christ alone for salvation will experience these riches. If you're here this morning, you've not yet embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're not trusting in Him right now for your salvation, listen, you can be made right with God right now this morning because of the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus. You can become rich this morning if you would turn from your sin, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you have not, I urge you to do that right now. Would you pray with me?